Hey guys, before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know about a couple things that I think that you'll love. If you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, you will most likely enjoy the Sunday Six. The Sunday Six is a Sunday newsletter that I send out every week, and it includes six interesting things that you can read in under six minutes. You can subscribe by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to jaredgrabiel.com. Um, of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe, but I always recommend checking it out. And then two other resources, if you're really into business, leadership, self-help, self-growth, uh, check out the Self-Help Book, which is a book that I published January 17th of this year, and the Self-Help Journal, which is a great practical guide to self-awareness, which is arguably one of the greatest tools of leadership in today's world. Let's dive into today's show. This is the Business and Leadership Podcast Hey guys, welcome back to the Business and Leadership Podcast. On today's episode, I have John Rossman. John was an executive at Amazon.com where he played a key role in launching the marketplace business and the third-party selling platform, as well as leading the enterprise service businesses. John also just re-released a new edition of his book, The Amazon Way, Amazon's 14 Leadership Principles. John is currently a partner at Rossman Partners, which is an advisory firm helping clients compete in the digital era, and he's an expert at crafting and implementing innovative and digital business models and capabilities. I am excited to learn a ton from John today. Thanks for being on the show, man. Jared, thanks for having me. Absolutely, dude. I want to dive right in. And I'm really interested, obviously, in your experience at Amazon, but what I like to pull from people before we get into like the meat and potatoes of your experience is what brought you there, right? So, John, if you were to tell your story of, of how you got to where you are today in, in maybe two or three minutes, what would that story sound like? Yeah, so I was at Amazon from early 2002 through late 2005. What, what maybe a lot of people don't, don't remember is that was right when kind of the dot-com era came to an end. So what brought me to Amazon was I I was running a small uh, data integration technology company. We had to wrap that up. Prior to to that, I had been a partner at a consulting firm at Arthur Anderson. And a colleague of mine, uh, Jason Child, was now a finance director at Amazon. We had kept in touch. And he like, you know, John, you ought to come on over. We've got We've got a strategy that we're thinking about that um, might be interesting to you. So I started interviewing at Amazon, and and that strategy was about the marketplace business. We called it the M app business, the Merchants at Amazon.com uh, platform, and that's what brought me to Amazon. But my my professional interests have always been around removing friction from from integration across devices, organizations, ecosystems. And so I've, I've always been interested in kind of not just the technology, but the business models and the motivational models of how do you get things that are naturally separated to integrate together to create a new business and a new customer experience. And so this was right in line with, you know, kind of the the dots of my career. And I've been fortunate in having that story and then kind of building on it since then. It's awesome, man. I bet you learned, you know, in those close to four years, um, especially in the dot com era, because a lot of businesses were beginning to thrive post two thousand, and a lot of 
them were, especially internet businesses that expected to do great, they were falling apart. And so um, Amazon was like sort of picking up the scraps and and beginning their long-term legacy in that in that marketplace. So it's, I bet it was a really interesting time to be a part of that. Um, well, let me kind of double click on that point. Um, so Amazon, um, the their stock had been at a high of 109 when I joined. It was at 12. We had less than a billion dollars in uh, cash. There were a lot of pundits and and analysts who were predicting the demise of Amazon. And so it was a very different company, but how they went about their work, um, what they believed in, how they made decisions, how they expect people to work together, what leadership means at Amazon is exactly the same playbook as they execute today. And those things became codified in the leadership principles. And so when I was there, we were figuring out like, well, you know, how do we make decisions? How do we um, think about customers. How, how? What are our expectations relative to working together? And that's what built these principles. And so that was really the story that I, I captured, uh, kind of coming out of Amazon. And I started putting it to work with my clients and one of my clients at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Several years after I left Amazon, kind of pulled me aside, like you do a nice job putting these strategies and techniques in place. You ought to write a book. And so that's what inspired me. To, to write the books that I've written. And um, Amazon, although the company is 10,000 times the size of the company, how they go about their work, how they prioritize, how they work together, it's it's extremely consistent. And that's been one of the, the secrets for them in how they've kept their culture and their entrepreneurial um, and accountability in their organization is through these leadership principles. And that's why I think it's a worthy story for others. Yeah, I'm interested to get into a little bit more of the book. Before we do that, um, let's back up a little bit. Where, where are you from? I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And that's where you're at right now? Or you're in Oregon? I, I'm, I'm in uh, Seattle. So I'm still in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. And where'd you go to college? Did you? Uh... I, went to, I went to Oregon State University in Corvallis, uh, Oregon. I studied uh, industrial engineering, which, which was really about, you know, efficiency and, and operations management. Awesome. And did you ever expect to be in tech? I mean, you know, that was. Well, I, I, I did. Um, my, my leaving um, Oregon State, I went to work for a consulting firm for Arthur Anderson um, and started as a developer and got to work on some really, I mean, this is late 80s, right? So some really leading edge uh, client server um, applications. And so I did expect and was excited to work in technology and actually understanding like the mechanics, uh, uh, the engineering of software and data and how these applications were built. But I quickly progressed to, you know, designing things. And then I've always kind of kept going you know, through the stack all the way up to the business models and things like that. But yeah, that was kind of my early uh, career cycles. Okay. And, and, and the other great part of that out of that was I got to see the world. So I got to travel essentially 100% for the first six years out of school. And, uh, you know, for a kid who I had never been, you know, east of the, of this little eastern town in Oregon called Joseph, Oregon, you know, it was just a great eye-opening experience for me to get to go see the world uh, right out of college. What an incredible opportunity. 
Would you say, John, that you have a mission in life? Do you have like a mission statement or, or personal values, anything that you've established along the way? What a great uh, question. So, so um, I do, but it's really not a professional uh, mission statement, although I, I would say I do have a professional mission, but my personal uh, mission statement has always been, um, ironically, uh, fit for life. And the way that I think about fit for life is um, mind, body, and soul. And that every day you need to do something for your mind, something for your intellect, learn something new. Every day you have to do something that invigorates uh, the body. And every day you have to have a reflective moment uh, to just understand the universe and, and that you're just a speck of that and to appreciate life. And so that's really been that balanced aspect um, that I've always, I don't know where the orientation or, or, or passion for that came from, but I've always wanted to lead a balanced life. Professionally, my interest has always been on on solving problems. Like how do you actually innovate and improve things through problem solving. And that's been, you know, kind of this, this integration has been a major thread of like, how do you actually innovate? Well, it's by connecting things together better so that they operate more seamlessly. So that's been kind of my professional um, mission. And I like helping other leaders and other organizations do those things, solve those types of problems, because I learned so much by getting to quickly participate against a broad array of situations. You talked about balance. And of course, that's something, it's sort of a buzzword uh, for, for young people, um, but it can be misappropriated at times, you know, for a, I would assume like a, a hardworking, um, I don't know if you're a type A, but you're obviously very driven. You've accomplished a lot. Um, you're, you're doing a lot. And, you know, we're obviously talking about a best-selling book that you've written how do you establish balance while accomplishing these goals? Do you have a, a morning routine where you you read and you reflect and do you work out X amount of times a week? What's that look like for you? Well, it's 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 had a pattern over my life when my boys were young, like those were really the busy days and the hardest points to to keep that balance. But honestly, like you know, if there's one thing I want written on my tombstone, it's like, um, John was a dad, like yeah. my family has, and my boys have always been like my number one, um, priority. And I've walked away from a lot of business and a lot of situations because of that, uh, priority and, and orientation. But today I'd say my pattern is, uh, we, we get up pretty early and that's the fitness window is early in the morning and, um, you know, I, I tend to have a little time in the afternoon and that's kind of when I do the reflective stuff. And then on the weekends is when I really get to have some quiet time to do um, more of the, the reading and the studying, like how do I improve my intellect um, that I take in there? That's the typical pattern. But, you know, because of, you know, just my business and where my clients are at, sometimes it gets mixed upside down. Like I have a client that's in Europe right now. So we have a lot of early morning meetings. So I kind of have to swap the fitness into later in the day. But in general, that's the pattern I like to have. And, and it is helpful to have a pattern relative to that to establish you know, what, however you define balance, which is really just an articulation of what's the priorities I want to have in my life. 
um, that's how it's extremely helpful in keeping those priorities kind of in their in their right allotment. Yeah, I like that, and I like that. You know, you, you made an emphasis on a- adaptation or pivoting, right? Like if you've got a morning client that shouldn't, you know, that'll change your morning, but that doesn't change your your life or how you balance your life, right? It's just the simple moving the workout to the evening or the afternoon or maybe even tomorrow because you've got to move some things around as opposed to just saying like, all right, well, the week's my, my structure is all out of balance. So I'm just not going to do it this week. You know? Yeah. I, I, I literally don't feel good. Uh, like I'm, I'm, I'm slightly grumpy, slightly irritable. I literally don't feel good if I don't uh, get exercise in a day. And so I just know, like at this point it's, it's, you know, I'm in my fifties, like it's just how I am wired at this point. And so, you know, you just have to uh, respect uh, who you, you know, I think one of the great things that comes with a little bit of age is, you, you understand who you are a little better and what are the things that plays your strengths? What are the things that trigger you and put you into, you know, your worst um, moments of yourself and, and, and how do you help yourself always be on your game? Yeah. And that's a big self-awareness piece. That's sort of a uh, reoccurring theme throughout the show with, with a lot of these high level leaders that I interview is like, the common denominator being understanding yourself and, and how you feel and your patterns and, 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 you know, how to pivot right properly. Um, John, I want to uh, transition here a little bit into the book, but more or less some, some topics around the book. How can other business leaders and entrepreneurs, cause you've mentioned this a handful of times talking about invention, simplification, innovation, how can other leaders and entrepreneurs invent and simplify similar to, uh, Amazon. Well, that's a that's a big uh, question, and really the heart of the work I do, which is how do you create an innovation and growth agenda for an organization, and that's very contextual. Like it really depends on where a business is at, what the ambition uh, of the ownership is relative to that, whether they're playing a shorter game or a longer game. And, but it, it really starts with like, well, what is your plan relative to that? And what you oftentimes find is a disconnect. They say they want to do one thing, but yet the way they operate, the way they allocate resources, um, the things they do are actually not in alignment with that plan. So it oftentimes really comes down to understanding what your motivation is linking that to a plan and then linking that to the actual things that you do around resource allocation and um, the investments that you're willing to make. So that's one angle of it. And then the other angle of it is just the, the, the culture, you know, we'll call it culture, but culture is really the little things you do, the environment you create and the, and the leadership patterns that you have that either orientate people more to uh, scaling and operating a really great business, which is a a big piece of the playbook and really important, or more into an experimentation mindset and an experimentation mode. And that's more where the innovation comes from. At its minimum, you need to understand the natural differences between those two. And what often happens, especially in successful companies, is they think that their playbook on how they've scaled and operated a great business, that that's going to work in creating new, smaller, um, 
uh, seeds or, 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 you know, the businesses of the future. And what you have to understand is like the very things you do in a scaled business are the things that will kill a small business. And so just that, that understanding is, is part of the process that, that leaders need to go through there. The very things you do in a scaled business are the things that will kill a small business. I think that's so, 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 so let's, let's talk about a specific example of that. So in a scaled business, one of the things you're able to do is budget and forecast revenue and costs and, and some aspects of things around customers. You can do that extremely well. If you try to do those things on a really small idea, what you might do is force objectives and investments and marketing and commitments before you've really proven out Who's your target market? How do they use it? Do you have all the components right before you try to scale it? And so I call that a budget roulette, right? We've, we've, we've got a new idea. We think it's great. We've gotten some good initial feedback. And so then you go into a planning cycle. And so what happens is like, okay, what's your committed budget next year? What's your committed forecast next year? Uh, I want to go big. I want to announce this to the world. I want to sign up that's the roulette, right? Like, okay, I guess we're going big before the concept or the market is really ready for that. And so those are the types of things you do in a scaled business that are the wrong things for a small embryonic business that you're still yeah. experimenting with. Yeah. You got to test the market, see if it works. Get, get, get all the operational aspects of it exactly right. You know, your unit costs, your, your, your maintenance, under, make sure you're, you understand how to roll it out. Oftentimes through a channel, you need to understand the entire customer experience from discovery through end of life. Like all of those things need to have a point of view on them before you decide to scale it in, in, in my experience. Now, you know, you can certainly point to this kind of blitz scaling uh, mindset that I think in a pure digital business can be the right way to go. But in most businesses that have some physical or analog, either product or location or organizational component or channel component, you, you, you need to test and prove things out before you really blitz scale it. Yeah. And I, that's interesting. You bring up blitz scaling. Um, what is that? Reed Hoffman. Yes. Uh, okay. So Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn, formerly involved in the PayPal sell mafia thing. Um, and I was listening to a podcast with Reed Hoffman and, and like one thing that he, uh, highlights that I think a lot of people skip over when they hear things like blitz scaling or just scaling in general is that that is designed primarily for the digital world, right? Like the tech, the like, dominantly tech uh, products, services, uh, software as a service versus launching, you know, a coffee shop or a gym or a product uh, that might le leverage technology, but not be driven specifically by technology. Um, and so scaling is this buzzword that I think gets used out of context because it's not always used specifically for, for digital and for uh, specifically tech oriented companies. So that's a good point. And, and it's also intended for a business model that intends to, you know, take in a lot of early capital, uh, give away a lot of ownership and control, and really go for it very early 
And that's not the right model for, for every business type or for every ownership group. And so, um, you know, again, it's having context and sensitivity to what the objectives are for ownership really helps determine like, what's your plan on all of these topics. Yeah, that's a great point. The Amazon has this, uh, and I remember reading about it um, in one of Bezos's letters. I've read all the letters. Nice. Stuff with the, uh, the day one concept. And that's something that really inspired me throughout my time running my company. Um, we sort of redefined what day one looks like for us. Can you explain what a day one organization is and, and how to become one? Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So, so day one is one of those brilliant kind of little consistent communication points that Bezos um, has used for a long period of time. I think it was his 2015 or 2016 shareholder letter where he expanded on, well, you know, what does it mean to be day one? And what, what he's intending for day one to mean to Amazon is that we are a company that is going to optimize for the long-term instead of for the short-term. And in order to optimize for the long-term, we are willing, we, we, we believe that the internet digital capabilities is, is just beginning and that we're gonna be explorers. We're gonna, we're gonna meander our way through this and we're gonna try things early. Um, and we're willing to suffer, suffer some short-term setbacks because we believe in the long-term gains. And so he counters that in the, in the shareholder letter. Well, what's it mean to be a day two company? A day two company is essentially a company that's pretty comfortable with the, 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 the way the world currently works. To some degree, they probably have an agenda of like maintaining the status quo because they're winning. And they're really typically trying to more optimize for short-term results, especially financial results in the short-term. And they're not investing that much in the future. And so he gives kind of a playbook of well, what do I do if I'm kind of, if day two kind of describes my organization, my management philosophy, what do I do to become a, 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 a more like a day one company? And so he, he breaks out a little playbook. A couple of the items from that playbook are, one is don't, don't solely rely on proxies for understanding, you know, where you're at or who your customer is. So a proxy is things like, surveys or what the media says about you, what you need to do is actually go understand the exact customer experience and the exact customer sentiment. So in some ways, whether it's ride-alongs or having uh, better exact customer insights and data, like make sure you understand and pay attention to the moments of dissatisfaction for your customer, for your channel. And the other thing he talks about is pay attention early to big disruptive uh, changes, some of which are in your industry or some of that are orthogonal to your industry, but you could see kind of how they play. And he talks about one, which is machine learning, but the real encouragement is to be curious and be deliberate in, in how you educate yourself about future topics so that you can pick the point, well, when do we start making a little bet in that, start learning more about it so that then we're early and we figure out how to take advantage of it. So those are a couple of the, of the things you do to become more of a, of, a, of a day one exploratory, innovative organization. That's, we could unpack and go in so many directions. Uh, 
And I'm such a business nerd. So I'm like chomping at the bit to go in one of these directions. But, you know, Jim Collins and Good to Great talks a lot about this concept of, you know, current success being your greatest enemy to future success. And of course, in, in his research, he's studied these large organizations over 20 plus years, right? And so Good to Great is this definition of can they survive the test of time, but not only survive, but thrive through it. And one of the things that that you mentioned was, you know, making decisions for the long term. And I think one thing that people don't realize in business is that once a company goes public, they have a responsibility to please the shareholders today. Um, and that changes things. That becomes a really complex, complicated and challenging dynamic of how do we make short-term sacrifices that will inevitably negatively affect our stock price to, so we can be around and relevant in 20 years. And that's what day one kind of means to me, right? It's like in the very beginning, we weren't worried about stock price. We were worried about changing the world, right? Or, or being around in 20 years, 100 years. Um, so, so, you know, a little double click on, on some of those points you bring up. So every shareholder letter, Bezos attaches the 1997, the original Amazon shareholder letter. And in that letter, he, he was explicit in, do not invest in Amazon if you expect us to optimize for short-term financial results. We won't be doing that, right? Like he is deliberate in declaring Amazon is a long-term focused company. We are going to try a lot of things. We are trying to optimize for the for the future enterprise value, but not for short-term optics. And we are going to try a lot of things, many of which don't work. Don't invest in us if you don't believe in these things, right? And, and so from the get-go, he's kind of defined like what, what sort of shareholders uh, should be involved in, uh, in the company. And I can I can vouch for the fact that you never at Amazon make a decision based on what we think the reaction to the stock market might be. Um, in uh, the the 14th leadership principle is about deliver results, and 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 at Amazon you're very planful in how you set about what your objectives are and the inputs, like what are the things I'm more in control of in order to get there? In one of, again, in one of Bezos shareholder letters, he talks about they had like 400 executive level goals that they had. None of them mentioned a finance, uh, a, a shareholder price. Only 35 of them had an actual financial component to them. The vast majority, so over 90% of the objectives were about a customer experience or about an operational objective, something they were more in direct control of with the theory of if we control and define the inputs, customer experience, operational excellence, we're going to get the outputs that we want from the business. But we don't, we, our mission isn't about the outputs. The mission is about being excellent at the inputs of serving customers and operational capability. I love that. And I, I remember reading that, uh, you know, in, when Bezos first did fundraising, it was friends and family. And he said, there's a 50% chance that this will work. And there's a 50% chance that you'll lose your money. And I love that honesty. Like that's day one honesty right there. Like, don't give me money if you think that this is going to work any greater than a 50% chance. Yep. Um, and look where they are now. So let's talk about, um, actually, I'm interested, you know, over the past 
30 years, I think somewhere around there, um, maybe 25 years, Amazon has had a handful of executives. Why you, why did you write the book, John? Did you have to get rights to do this? I mean, there's probably so many guys and gals that have worked uh, closely with this organization that maybe would have liked to write this book. Like, how did you, how did you do this? Did you just beat them to it or how does that work? Well, um, I wouldn't say I was the first former Amazon person to write a book about the approach of, of Amazon. There was an earlier book by, uh, um, I think his name's David Price, um, wrote a book called uh, um, The Best Service is No Service, which was really about Amazon's notion of, of customers really don't want to have to contact you uh, and everything. But it was... Um, Five or six years after I left Amazon, and again, a, a client of mine kind of like, hey, you do a nice job. And so it was really, to some degree, serendipity of having somebody who had a background in books. Uh, his name's Greg Shaw. He had run uh, Bill Gates' two book projects for him. Somebody who who understood the power of books. And then he, he understood. So this is 2013. In Seattle, we were starting to see like, oh, Amazon is really this interesting platform company. The rest of the country, the rest of the world wasn't quite seeing it at that point. And so Greg saw the early story here. And, and so he's the one that encouraged me uh, to, 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 to start writing a book. And um, the best thing I did was talk him into being my business partner on these books. And so... And then we we were picking through all the stories of Amazon, and we decided that the leadership principles were the most interesting way to tell the story of Amazon. And then in the leadership principles, we insert all these techniques uh, from Amazon. And I did this third edition. We just released the third edition of the Amazon Way because there's there's been a, a few changes to the leadership principles but um, more importantly, I wanted to update. I, I got a guy by the name of Tom Alberg, who was one of those early founders at Amazon. He was on the board for 23 years to write a forward. I wrote a preface for, uh, a, wrote a new preface, which was an encouragement to Amazon to, to consider uh, a new leadership principle. Um, and then I, I wrote a couple of new appendixes, one of which is about how to build your own leadership principles. And so, you know, this, this book, like the leadership principles, needed needs a every couple of years update to stay relevant to both Amazon as well as to what others can learn from it. I love that. And the uh, we talked a little bit about the culture. Um, how does someone create a culture around systematic innovation by working backwards from the customer? Because that's a lot of what Amazon does is what does the customer want or need and then you work, you sort of reverse engineer it or quote unquote work backwards from there. Let's talk about that. Well, I think the the underpinnings of that is you just got to be curious, right? And so when whatever way it is, you know, in technology, they have this concept of dog fooding, which means like you you use your own tools. So that's one way to be curious about the customer. The other way is, you know through all of the tried and true, you know, ride along customer surveys, spending time with the customers, spending time, especially with customers who say no to you, all of those things that take an investment of time in gaining insights into 
well, what's the real job they're trying to get done? Like, what's their real objective? Their objective isn't to purchase this product or their service. The objective is to get to something else, right? What's that purpose? And what's the creative, unique element that we can bring to the equation? And that's the working backwards from the customer's objectives or the customer's problem back to, well, how can we serve them uniquely? Amazon has some techniques relative to this, and some of the techniques are about writing. So writing out what, what you've learned from that customer, what you think their problem is, is, which is essentially your hypotheses, your smart guesses as to what you think the, the winning ideas are, and then how you would go about building, experimenting, testing, and hopefully someday scaling uh, relative to that business. And so Amazon has this, this, this uh, approach of writing. They talk about narratives. They talk about future press releases. They talk about FAQs and, and very quick prototyping in order to get a better definition of what we envision the future being, what the customer future is, and then how do we build something towards it? And so they start then their agile uh, development cycles with a much better understanding of what they think the end game is, as well as what is our sequence of steps that we're going to get so we can, you know, build and test along the way. So that is, you know, um, much like predicting the future. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you, if you understand your customer and if you've worked with them long enough, and if obviously if you've got a unique gift around, serving people, uh, you do a better job of predicting the future. But when you try to make these predictions um, based off of empirical evidence and instinct, I think it's inevitable that you're going to fail every once in a while, right? So John, are there failures that you're familiar with? or, Or do you have like a favorite failure of trying to do this whole working backwards from the customer thing? Well, so so really what you're talking about when you're talking about failure, you're talking about experimentation, right? And 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 so first of all, like when I work with teams and we talk about, you know, this this fail fast, fail forward concepts, it's like the problem with the word failure is it is it's overloaded. It can mean multiple things. It means both experimentation, but it also means sloppy management, sloppy execution. So um, one of which is the thing we're trying to achieve, which is testing and learning. The other is what we won't accept, which is poor, sloppy technique and, and management. So let's let's just not use the word failure anymore. Let's use experimentation versus good technique, right? And so that's one thing. The, the business I got to help launch and scale at Amazon, so the marketplace business, so this is early 2002, that was actually the third iteration of a third-party selling strategy at Amazon. So the first two had failed, as, as Jeff said, uh, no one showed up. And um, and so those were the, that was an auctions business, and that was a Z shop, uh, what was called the Z shops business. None of them were the right customer experience. And so that's an example of Amazon being fixed on vision but flexible on technique. And and not giving up. And when I was there, like resources were constrained. We had both external, but a lot of internal naysayers who were not bought in that this was the right thing for Amazon at that point. But Jeff was committed to it, and we had a little band of pirates, and you know we made it happen. Um, and and then it took patience. Like it wasn't like this immediate. Like oh yeah, this is a hit. 
it took years for the marketplace business and some new learnings along the way. Those learnings are the prime uh, um, loyalty model at Amazon. And then this other capability called FBA, which is fulfillment by Amazon. It was the combination of third-party selling with Prime, with FBA, that really in like 2007, then took off. And so today, the marketplace business is 50 to 60% of total units at Amazon. But even that was a very patient path in getting to this, you know, big dreamy business uh, that Amazon has today. Yeah, that's a great example of some, uh, what are we calling them? Experiments? Experiments. Experiments. Exactly. Okay. Um, and I remember reading about that, the, the Z shop and, and some of the nuanced changes and significant changes you made to make marketplace successful. And for the audience, Amazon marketplace is where third party sellers sell products. And so you may or may not know this, uh, when you buy something on off Amazon, it doesn't always come directly from Amazon. It might be a third party seller like me selling you the, you know, workout bands or the journal, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and that's a very impactful, uh, to you, John, that's a huge, significant change to the Amazon ecosystem because that was at a time, I don't want to say they were competing with eBay. That might be the word for it. Oh, oh well, we were hardly competing with eBay, meaning they were kicking our ass. Yeah. And they were a far bigger business than Amazon was, and they were the king of the marketplace. But we had a distinct perspective that that wasn't the customer experience that, that we wanted at that point eBay was very much a, a laissez-faire, like, hey, this is between the buyer and seller. We just kind of connect you. We take no accountability for how it works. And we were like, no, our customer experience is based off of trust. And trust means we make commitments and we hit those commitments. Um, and we take accountability, whether it's an Amazon retail item or a third-party marketplace item. So we constructed a much different mechanism or approach for how sellers sold at Amazon, which was very, which was much more robust than what was going on at eBay at the time. And, um, and so it wasn't a proven model. At that point in 2002, 90% of Amazon's business was books, music, video. So we used the marketplace to expand into categories rapidly where we couldn't have possibly had either the merchandising expertise or the, 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 the balance sheet to purchase all the inventory that we would need in apparel, in sporting goods, in home, in the electronics, in musical instruments, in gourmet, in all of these categories we, we launched, we did that through the marketplace uh, platform. What a genius addition. Uh, so you were around, you know, Amazon, almost 20 years ago, 15 to 20 years ago, you must've worked closely with Jeff, right? Cause the team was, I imagine pretty small. It, it, it was dramatically smarter, smaller. I didn't report to Jeff, but especially for the first year and a half, we, we met a lot. I did get to travel a couple of times uh, with Jeff to go see some of our big enterprise clients. So, so, you know, had more than enough opportunity of, of working with, with Jeff and, and the S team. Yeah. What's that like? Um, it's, um, on one hand invigorating because at his core, like he's, he's a problem solver, like, like he wants to understand things, but it's also demanding because he expects you to understand your business better than, than he does. And what, what 
frustrates him is when he's able to figure something out that if I've got all these other smart people that are supposed to be focused on this and they haven't figured it out, but I can figure it out. Like, I think appropriately so, like he gets frustrated. He has high expectations for the leaders in his business. Yeah. You don't get to a trillion dollar valuation without having high high expectations. Uh, In your experience and in your field, John, are there any bad recommendations that you hear like in your area of expertise? Bad recommendations. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the bad recommendations I hear tend to be around, well, we're, we're going to operate um, this experiment. Like we operate all of our other projects or our programs. Um uh, some of the things we already talked about, like, well, let's budget what the, um, let's try to build a business case for this. Like those are bad recommendations because you're you're asking something that is inherently a guess, right? Like that's what a bet is. Um, so I'm in the business of helping companies make smart bets. The key is making those bets super small so that you can afford them, right? Um, and so those are the bad recommendations that I hear um, and then it's followed by, well, it didn't work. We have to hold that team or that leader accountable. It was a bet, right? At best, it was 50% probability. We learned a lot from it, but yet there's a stigma around being this in this failed, in this failed experiment. So what do good leaders at a company like that do? There's no way I'm going to get close to this you know, innovation game because I know that that's where your 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 role in the dice relative to your career. So those are the bad recommendations that I see. And, and back to you know Reed Hoffman, who you mentioned, he's got a great quote, and I think it's extremely true, which is um, the biggest risk large successful companies have is in not taking enough business risks in experimentation. And and I think that not innovating enough. And I think that's the essence of the, what I try to bring my clients is how do we be systematic innovators, not accidental innovators, but systematic on, on our innovation, focus on the inputs of how we innovate, knowing that if we do that with some patience and some consistency, we know we're going to get the right outputs. Yeah. You, you try enough things, something's going to work. What do you, you, you just have to make them small and affordable, right? Like right. that's, but what do big companies good at? Big companies are good at putting all types of obligations and one size fits all processes like HR or procurement or risk management onto small little projects that inherently makes them big projects. Therefore, we can no longer afford to have them fail and then everything unravels. Right. Um, John, what, what do you think uh, contributes the most to business success? And I know this is like a, a vague question, but for example, you, you can choose between market timing or leadership alone or teamwork, market conditions, the business model, product market fit, culture. If you had to identify one of those things that sits at the, the pinnacle of some type of pyramid that makes a business successful, what would you say that one thing is? Do I have the option of resisting the inherent nature of the question that it, it is one thing? Um, um, uh, I, I think it's really if, if there is one thing, and so I'll, I'll I'll go along with the assumption that there is one key thing. I think it's 
Or what's the most important thing? Let's say the most important thing is, is having an inherent passion around serving your customer that is bigger than having the financial result out of serving your customer. So I think that essence of, of having a mission, a curiosity and natural orientation towards helping that customer be successful. I think that is what helps more companies be more successful over a longer period of time other than anything else. But you can't have just that. But I think that is the most important thing out of all of those types of elements. Love it. And in your opinion, John, what makes a good leader? And you can give me one to three character traits. What would those character traits be? Uh, consistent. And I think some of the the worst leaders I've seen don't have a consistency in different types of moments, or they they have a different leadership style, especially under stress. And I think when you can um, have a very deliberate and consistent point of view, which is what leadership principles like this help you do, then it helps helps you avoid the highs and lows of the what you perceive as the wins and losses along the way. I think the the other thing, and this is really you know what I focus on is is under leadership, which understands the the deliberate differences between operating and innovating. And I think that is really the essence of understanding how to compete in a hyper competitive, hyper quick moving market is understanding the nature of those two um, playbooks. And I think the last thing is the ability to communicate and um, consistent, clear, simple communication that then can be unpacked into more details. I work with a lot of of teams on just being able to tell their story and understanding the audience, right? Some audiences need a simple headline version of that story. Some audiences need the mid-level aspect of that. Some audiences and moments need the unpacked version. So that cascading ability to tell your story your product story, your company story, your product mission, that is, I think, a a notion of leadership that is not highly recognized um, often. But as you know, if you look at Bezos, what I think his real superpower is that ability to, to tell a consistent story and a consistent set of patterns so that people can come along on the ride and understand, oh, that's that's who we are. So this is how I'm going to operate. He's been very consistent relative to that. Yeah, that's great. And, and, that's, and that's really where these leadership principles spring from is through that deliberate thought and communication aspect. If you were to uh, maybe turn back time and give your We'll say 20, 22 year old self, or I guess what, what would be the greatest lesson that you could give college graduates right now to maybe minimize their future regrets? What would that be? Um, it's really around, I think, um, digging in 
and becoming an expert at whatever your particular problem is. I think this notion of following your passion is, you know, Scott Galloway talks about like that. That's what uh, rich, successful white guys say uh, once they're rich and successful is follow your passion, you know, and everything, right? Great careers are built by by solving problems, which is how you create value for who your customer is, right? So fall in love with the problems that you're solving for your customers and become an expert at that. Learn your craft early in your career is I think the number one advice for early career um, uh, people. Love it. And if you were to recommend uh, a couple books, we'll say two to three books outside of the Amazon way, uh, what would they be? Maybe your, your favorite books, nonfiction or fiction. Yeah. So uh, a couple of, of uh, recent ones is um, I love the shoe dog uh, book, which is Phil Knight's book. And if you really read that book, like what you, you like, Nike wasn't this overnight success. And the book is really the story of how he bootstrapped that company for years on a week to week basis and how easy it would have been to, for him to give up. And so I thought that book, like, like you just, you see these big companies, you just go, Oh my gosh, like they just hit it right. You know, and everything like it's not typically the story. Uh, the other one, and I have a copy of it right here, is uh, Peter Drucker's The Effective Executive. And this is a business classic. Um, and, you know, what Drucker's point of view is, is that if you, the challenge isn't in managing others, the challenge is in managing yourself. And so it's really having command of your own facilities is the essential management challenge. And so uh, that's a book that uh, I really, really like. And um, then I, I, I read a bunch of historical novels. Uh, I like kind of Cold War era of uh, nonfiction, uh, true stories and stuff. And and a great writer that I really like his work is a writer by the name of Ben McIntyre. And he's, he's written a couple of books. Um, one's called um, the trader and the spy and the other is agent Sonia. And I, I just think those are, are, you know, understanding history is I think really um, a fascinating way to help you slow down and just think about, you know, how the world changes and um, no matter how either good or bad you think things are appreciating that it can and will change and that it's the everyday um things that we do that over time really change the nature of the world. You know, those stories are the stories of average people changing history. That's a great place to stop. Uh, and that sounds like a fascinating book. I like historical books as well. I haven't read anything necessarily about the cold war. Um, but, uh, John, I, I really appreciate you being on the show and uh, before we jumped on, you mentioned a newsletter that you recently started putting out. Um, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes, but can you talk for a second about the newsletter? Yeah, so it's on Substack, right? So the Substack newsletter uh, platform. So if you go to Substack, you can search either John Rossman or the Digital Leader. And so it's a weekly strategy lesson and tactics lesson about you know the skills that 
digital leaders need in order to get the types of results that they want. So, you know, major points of emphasis are around customer centricity and a lot of these things around innovation and experimentation techniques. Awesome. John Rossman, author of the Amazon Way, Amazon's 14 Leadership Principles. I will also put a link to that in the show notes as well. Thanks again for being on the show today. Jared, great connecting with you. Thank you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Before you go, I have a couple asks of you. Number one, if you enjoy the Business and Leadership Podcast, I highly recommend you checking out the Sunday Six. Uh, the Sunday Six is a newsletter that I send out every Sunday with six interesting things that t- should take you about six minutes or less to check it out, unless you decide to go on one of the rabbit holes of the links that I include in the email. It's definitely worth checking out. And of course, if you don't enjoy it, you can always unsubscribe. You can check out the Sunday Six by uh, looking in the show notes. There's a link there or going to jaredgrabiel.com and subscribing. Additionally, of course, January 17th, I published my first book, The Self-Help Book. And if you enjoy the content in the Business and Leadership Podcast, you'll most likely enjoy the book. You can read it in under two hours. It's very applicable, extremely practical. You can pick up one chapter and apply it to your life, or you can read the whole thing. Um, The Self-Help Book can be found at amazon.com or anywhere online that books are sold. And last but not least, the self-help journal. Of course, if you enjoy the book, you'll love the journal. It's a practical way to apply some of the steps to your life. Um, Self-awareness is a huge tool in business and leadership and journaling. Whether you use mine or anybody else's is going to be the best step you can take towards gaining self-awareness. So I recommend checking that out. Just search the self-help journal, Jared Grabiel on amazon.com. It's currently for sale for $9.99. And again, if you enjoy the show, please do two things. Refer it to a friend and leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thanks again. Much love and God bless.